Good morning, Portage Bible Church. Glad you're with us this morning as we join to worship the Lord together once again. We gather each week to be reminded that we are not our own. We go through the course of the week with different trials and struggles, and we come back together to seek the things that are above, which is Christ at the right hand of the Father, who is praying for us and coming again for us. I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verses 1 through 6, as we begin our time this morning, and stand with me for the preaching, or the singing, later the preaching, getting ahead of myself, for the singing together. Psalm 24, let us stand together. Now, as you're still turning there, I do turn your attention to the bulletin for just a moment. The second song we'll be singing today is titled Psalm 24, The King of Glory, which we'll be singing a new song today and next week based on this portion of Scripture we're reading this morning. It is my aim as your pastor to also pick out music that goes with Scripture that is based on the Word of the Lord. And it, it, not only is it a new song, but it is actually slightly a difficult song. But I want you to see where it comes from and how we can sing the word of the Lord together. Psalm 24, beginning in verse 1, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Next week we'll finish out this song as we prepare to sing the same song once again. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true. Lord, your word says, who shall come and worship before you? It is he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Lord, we are reminded today that all of us fall short of that but your son Jesus Christ has not and it is because of him who shed his precious blood and are covered by his righteousness Lord we here who gather today who know your son Jesus our Lord and Savior we get to come and worship you because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ Lord, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that all we have is because of you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Precious cornerstone, your foundation. You are faithful to 
Jesus, we believe your all to us. Precious cornerstone, sure foundation, you are faithful to the end. We are waiting on you, Jesus. We believe your all to us. Let the glory of your name be the passion of the church. Let the righteousness of God be a holy flame that burns. Let the saving love of Christ be the measure of our lives. We believe your all to us. Only Son of God sent from heaven, hope and mercy at the cross. You are everything, you're the promise. Jesus, you are all to us. Let the glory of your name be the passion of the church. Let the righteousness of God be a holy flame that burns. Let the saving love of Christ be the measure of our life. We believe your all to us. Let the glory of your name be the passion of the church. Let the righteousness of God be a holy flame that burns. Let the saving love of Christ be the measure of our life. We believe your all to us. Your all to us. Your all to us. Your all to us. You are.
Thank you for singing with us this morning and although our music team is very talented they worked extra hard at my request for a song that's quickly becoming one of my favorites and it is a joy to sing especially when the words come directly from the scriptures I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 1 as we give ourselves to the public reading of Scripture, we have spent the last few years now reading through the Apostle John's writings from the Gospel, finishing up with 
his letter of 3 John last week, we began to read through this morning the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8 this morning. And always by way of reminder, it is the revelation of Jesus, not the revelations. One singular revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven, church, seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Heavenly Father, bless the reading of your word. Lord, you tell us right here, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. Lord, we gather to be reminded that we are not our own and that your Son is coming back. But until that day, Lord, teach us to be faithful. Teach us to glorify you. Lord, teach us to be people of your word. Not merely hearers, but hearers and doers of it. Lord, we need you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we sing 309 together, I will sing of my Redeemer. Oh. 
Father, Lord, you are such a gracious and good Father to us. Uh, you have blessed us with so much, first of all, by putting us here in this church, Lord, where we can hear your word preached, but also the safety you give us, Lord, whether it's the safety of this building and the shelter it provides us from the elements or our houses, Lord, or whatever it might be, Lord, you have blessed us with an abundance. We thank you for it. And because of that, we give a portion back to you of what you've given to us, Lord, to use for your kingdom. We ask that you would bless this offering many times over for the good of your kingdom. 
and to you be the honor and the glory forever and ever. It is that time in our worship service where we devote time to prayer. And although it's, it tends to be a little bit longer form of prayer today, my aim is to keep it a little shorter, mainly because we still have communion and the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to turn with me to First Chronicles. First Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 13 to go to the Lord and to thank him for his goodness this morning. It is the first Sunday of March, first Sunday of each month we take communion together. Spring is around the corner, as they say. The weather is getting warmer. People are returning from Florida. Yes, that was specific. If you haven't said hi to Judy, she snuck in. We gather as a church be reminded that the Lord is good. We gather as a church to pray and ask the Lord for wisdom that he would do a work among us. Before I pray, I do want to share with you one important announcement. Um, we have talked much on the state of our church and our organization with the IFCA. I do want to let you know that I have uh, talked directly with the executive director of the IFCA and his response to our conversations here were if we cannot re-sign the affirmation then don't sign we are free to go but before we inform them of that decision um, which is due the 31st of this month I want to offer uh, two more weeks from today from the day to the 17th that if anyone has any further questions or concerns about that decision, please come talk to myself or Brandon and uh, to discuss those things because after that we will be informing them of that decision. And we want to pray and ask the Lord for his wisdom and guidance. Reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, giving God his proper name of Yahweh, we read in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10. So David blessed Yahweh in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, our Father, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything 
that is in the heavens and on the earth. Yours is the kingdom, O Yahweh. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. So now, our God, we are thanking you and praising your glorious name. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your name is glorious. We thank you that you are Lord of heaven and earth. Yours is the greatness, the power, the victory, the majesty. Everything on heaven and on earth is yours. You who know the hearts and minds of all, Search us, O Lord, we pray. May we be found desiring to know you and your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, if we do, fill us with your Spirit today. Teach us and remind us that you are Lord. And Lord, I pray this day for anyone here you have brought that does not know your Son, Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of salvation, that you would cause them to be born again the work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, may no one leave here not knowing for sure that they can know you and spend eternity with you free from sin and rejoicing in the hope that is found in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray this morning, give us wisdom as a church in the decisions we need to make. Help us to look to you and glorify you in all that we do. And Lord, I thank you for the work you're doing among us Lord, as we share prayer requests throughout the week, as we talk and pray with one another, we thank you for the answers to prayer. We thank you for the work you've done in Sandy Schmidt this week. We thank you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for those who are recovering from sickness. We thank you for some answers for Vicki Lewis and her ongoing sickness. Lord, we thank you for healing. We thank you for those who are in remission from cancer. We pray for those who are still going through treatments. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen them as only you can do. As it says in your word, in your hand lies to make great and strengthen everyone. So strengthen, O oh Lord, we pray, as only you can do. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Here on the Portage Bible Church on the first Sunday of each month, we take communion together. And here in a few moments, I'll invite you to come down the center aisle here and partake uh, from the trays that are here. It is still the cups that are pre-made. And then make your way back down to your seat down the uh, side aisles. Spend time in prayer and examining yourself as the ladies play the music for us. And if you are unable to come forward, and there is no shame in that, simply put up your hand and Brandon or Chris uh, we'll grab an extra for you and uh, bring it to you there in your place where you are sitting. As Pastor Kevin DeYoung says so concisely, from a children's storybook Bible, by the way, I was talking to some of the men recently, that some of my favorite instructions regarding the Lord's Supper come from children's storybook Bibles because the author has taken time to very clearly teach 
what is meant and what is taking place here. He says, when Christians meet together for worship, they celebrate the supper that Jesus gave his disciples. It's a special meal for those who repent of their sins, trust in Jesus, and belong to a church. Communion is a time to remember what Jesus did and to tell the world that he died for sinners. It's also a time where Jesus is with us. When we eat from the broken bread and drink from the cup, we have fellowship with him. We are joined with one another and joined with those, with the one who died for us. It's food to help our faith, a supper to give us strength. As we read in Psalm 23, David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. David writes for us in these words to be reminded that because of the work of Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross, we are now able to come and partake together. We don't take to add anything to our salvation. We don't take to keep God on our good side, as often is phrased. We take because Christ has saved us. If you're joining with us in worship this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, please refrain from taking this. As Paul tells us, those who partake in an unworthy manner drink judgment upon themselves. It is not for worthy people to partake. It is for unworthy people who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this we celebrate that when we acknowledge our sin to the Lord and we do not hide and pretend that we are okay people, it is the Lord who forgives the iniquity of our sin. And because he has done so, we come and we partake to remember and rejoice and to celebrate he has set us free. So here, as the ladies begin, make your way forward, partake, go back to your, take it back to your seat, and when the song is over, we will partake together.
As I read from 1 Corinthians, you are free to begin unwrapping. As I know, the, sometimes the little peeling back makes a loud noise, but that's okay. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, that's exactly what we've been talking about in the Gospel of Mark lately, took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me Lord we thank you that you came and gave yourself for us betrayed by one of your very own went all the way to the cross body beaten and hung for us. Lord, we thank you that as we partake this morning, we partake to remember what you have done, but also to thank you that you have paid the ultimate price. And so in your name we pray. Amen. Let us partake of the bread together. The Apostle Paul goes on to say, in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, we thank you for your perfect, spotless blood. No sin no corruption. Blood that made atonement for us to take away our iniquity and to cover our shame. Lord, we thank you that as we celebrate and remember this morning, 
and we give you the thanks for all that you have done for us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let us partake together. For as Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he is coming back. First Sunday of every month, we partake, we partake together and we take a special benevolence offering, specifically designated for those in our church who may need it financially. And if you do, please see Chris Birch out, uh, who oversees these things. It is money given above and beyond to meet the needs of where one may be struggling. It is a gift for that very purpose. It is a way to worship and to give back to the Lord of what he has given for us. So, Lord, I pray, thank you that we can give back in this way. Lord, we pray that you'd use these funds for your honor and glory. We thank you that we as a church are able to care for one another in this way. And for your glory, we pray. Amen. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, pleasing to you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be my God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, pleasing to you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart 
be pleasing to you, my God. You're my rock and my redeemer. You're the reason that I sing. I desire to be a blessing in your eyes. Every hour and every moment, Lord, I want to be your servant. I desire to be a blessing in your eyes. In your eyes. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, my God. I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14 looking at verses 53 through 65 this morning a much shorter passage than we saw last week yet one still full of what Christ has done for us you know as you turn there this morning it is a joy to come and worship together it is a joy to sing and to celebrate and for the most part, when it comes to the preaching of God's Word, we want to be edified. We want to be instructed. We want to say amen. And every now and then there's a portion of Scripture that is a little bit heavier, as it should be. If you leave here today pondering that, man, that was a bummer of a message... It is the word of the Lord that reminds us the reality of sin and the price that was paid for us. I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word as we look at Mark 14, verses 53 through 65 together. And they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. 
And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What it is these men testify against you. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning. Help us. We need you. Amen. You may be seated. The meekness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Has anyone ever taken your words and twisted them out of context? Made you sound like you said something you really did not say? Skewed the meaning and the purpose of what you said? Have you ever taken somebody else's words and twisted them? try to paint yourself in a better light to make yourself look better than you really are at some point or another we're all guilty of that we all like to make ourselves look better at the expense of other people it's human sinful nature and our pride and selfishness to watch out for ourselves it is the very reason that Jesus came to save us from our sin from ourselves to be reminded that we are not our own Jesus took our shame Jesus took our place by going all the way for us in this portion of scripture Jesus says something very clearly he only says a few words here in this portion but his words are powerful the whole theme of our study in the gospel of Mark that we have been on for just a little over a year now has been asking the question that Jesus asked his disciples who do you say that I am? We say he is Lord. Mark brings us to this point in this text when even the high priest will ask him a direct question and Jesus will say I am. I am the Lord. Many people try to understand and explain why Jesus died. Whether because he lived a good moral lifestyle or because he was disliked by the Pharisees and the religious leaders because of all the things that he taught. But for none of that was he crucified. He was crucified. What put him on the cross, even though he was sinless, in the eyes of the Jewish leaders, was the sin of blasphemy. Blasphemy my simple definition is slander against God. That's what blasphemy is. Jesus himself 
claimed to be God, which he was, by the way. He is. But in their eyes, they did not believe that. So for him to say such a thing would be blasphemy, which is deserving of death. In the Old Testament, under the Levitical law, which these high priests and others were trying to keep, it was death by stoning. But this time in Jewish history, they did not have the authority to do that because Rome was governing them so strictly. It was up to Rome to put people to death. But these religious leaders were seeking in their great hypocrisy to put to death the one they did not want while simultaneously trying to keep the law which they were failing to do. It is on this late into the night after Passover, which is now really early Friday morning, we find the setting that as Judas has betrayed his teacher with a kiss and all the other disciples who boldly, very boldly as we saw last week from verse 31 when Peter threw the other ten under the bus saying even if they all leave, I will not. And he emphatically, repeatedly said even if I must die with you, I will go with you. And they all said the same, yes, me too, I will follow you. And then as we ended last week with verse 50 there, including the disciples and the young man in verses 51 and 52, they all left him and fled. And yet Jesus kept going all the way. Which brings us now to verse 53 to see what is taking place here. Let us observe in the first place from verses 53 and 54 the meekness of Jesus Christ. The meekness of Jesus Christ. Because we see here in the text, verse 53, and they led Jesus to the high priest. The high priest was named Caiaphas, a member of the Sadducees. The Sanhedrin is made up of 70 men, Sadducees, small portion, the Pharisees, as well along with the scribes. The scribes were those who were to keep the word of the Lord, the books of Moses, the prophets, the writing, the Psalms, and to make copies and to know them. The Pharisees were the more righteous sect in the sense of keeping all the Old Testament. The Sadducees were those who only kept the words of Moses. And their often appointed position was that from family lineage and financial gain. And the high priest in the days of Jesus was a member of the Sadducees. In the meekness of Christ, we are reminded, as the saying often goes when describing meekness, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. The Lord of heaven and earth allowed himself to be captured, allowed himself to be bound, and allowed himself to be led by the soldiers to the high priest. Who's really in control? It tells us that Jesus was led in this way. The Lord of all creation, on whom everything in heaven and earth is made and through him and for him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Was led to the high priest. And the text tells us, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes came together. Which we might simply say, the whole Sanhedrin came together. Late into the night, under the cover of darkness, 
they come and they gather at the place of the high priest. And verse 24 tells us, and Peter had followed him at a distance. Here is Peter, the one who said, even if they all deny you, even if they all fall away, I will not. I will go with you all the way to death. He fled in the garden, but not too far. But now he's beginning to keep his distance. Peter wanted to know, curious Peter wanted to know what was going to happen to his friend, his teacher, to the one he said is the Messiah. But now he's keeping his distance. He's already gotten trouble for lopping off the ear of a guard and being rebuked by Jesus for doing so. He follows at a distance. But it's also interesting because the text is very, Mark is very explicit in some of his details. Most historians, and I agree with them, that the Gospel of Mark, written by Mark, obviously, was discipled and taught by the Apostle Peter. Mark is being very detailed in what is taking place here because it tells us that Peter followed at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. The courtyard of the high priest was the place where the Sanhedrin was to gather, to examine, and to teach. But here, late into the night, they're not in the courtyard where they belong. There are several servants, along with Peter and others, keeping themselves warm by a fire in the middle of the night, while they're all in the high priest's house where they should not be, examining Jesus under the cover of darkness. right into the courtyard. And the text tells us, and as he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. The stage is set for Peter's soon denial, which we won't see today. But it kind of leaves us hanging here for a moment. This is what Peter is up to. But as the whole Sanhedrin gathers, as they assemble together, Mark is showing us through the Holy Spirit the evil motives that are taking place here under the cover of darkness. Sin loves to grow in darkness. Light exposes what is dark. I was very fascinated when I was a young kid when I learned just how powerful a candle was when the room is pitch black, how much light it gives. Here's the Son of God, the light of the world, blameless, without fault, perfect and spotless in every way. Under darkness and evil motives, the Sanhedrin comes together. Because even as Jesus, when he was being arrested after Judas kissed him, it tells us in verse 48, as we saw last week, and Jesus said to them, have you come out against me as a robber, literally an insurrectionist, with swords, and clubs to capture me. Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. And here they have seized him under the cover of darkness where sin loves to grow and fester. It's easy to go about our merry way throughout the course of life, work, family, 
responsibilities, forget about the hardships, forget about the darkness, forget about our temptations, forget about the things that cause us to doubt and to fear. But there's something about late at night, when the day is quiet, not much else taking place. The temptations, the familiar ones, the habitual ones, have a way of creeping back in. The evil thoughts that we know should have no part of us just have a way of popping back up into our minds. Such is our need for a Savior. For those who do not believe, it is the time for evil to take place. As it says there in the courtyard here, where Peter is, is waiting and watching. The place where a trial should be is now being held under the cover of darkness within the house. We see the meekness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was led willingly by evil men, who came against him as if he was an insurrectionist, and treating him as such. And from this first thing in the meekness of our Lord Jesus Christ, remember he is in control. He willingly went all the way for us, despising the shame that came his way. Let us learn even from the Apostle Peter who boldly said, I will follow you even to death and now is keeping his distance when things get hard. Because things do get hard in life. Doubts creep in. Fears resurface. Let us not fear the darkness and the spiritual warfare that often so takes place. But if we truly know the Lord Jesus Christ, truly understand what he has done for us. Let us be a people who repent of sin. And say, Lord, when those dark thoughts creep back in, when I'm overwhelmed by the affairs of life, when I am know what is wrong, and yet seeking my own benefit, my own well-being, Lord, teach me to repent and not hide in the darkness. It is repentance that frees us from sin and evil. And it's simply a prayer of, Lord, help me. Help me. Something that Peter is soon going to have to learn, the seriousness, to which he boldly proclaimed, I will go all the way with you. And now here he is hiding. But let us observe also from verses 55 through 59. That although Jesus was abandoned, he endured the shame for our sin. Because as the text picks up, it says us now in verse 55, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking a testimony. They were literally seeking evidence against Jesus. And their motives are quite clear, to put him to death. They did not have the authority or the ability to kill somebody who was in innocent. And John, or sorry, Mark has told us from the very beginning of the gospel that after the preaching that Jesus told of repentance from sin, the Pharisees were offended that they would have to repent. And it has been their motives for three years to put him to death, and now it is time. And their time to finally get rid of this one who is causing so much turmoil in their nation. But from God's perspective, it is time for the one to die for the sins of all who would believe 
that they would come to know him, to be reconciled. They were seeking some evidence. How can we get rid of him? We might simply say in our own vocabulary now, the charges were lacking against Jesus. No duh, he was blameless. How can you charge somebody who lacks sin? You cannot. But as one commentator said, this trial that is taking place late into the night is rigged from the get-go. Long before it takes place, it is rigged and already taken place. And although the charges were lacking, they wanted to bring some evidence so that they could be blameless themselves in the eyes of the law, the word of the Lord. These scribes, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, they wanted to accuse Jesus while themselves appearing to be blameless. It's just dripping with hypocrisy. And yet the text keeps going because they could not find anything. For it says in verse 56, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. It tells us, and for the sake of time, I'm going to clearly give you the references because I'd like you to look them up. It tells us in Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 through 21, Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21, that an evidence brought by witnesses against one who is condemned is to be at least two, if not three people, in order to be valid. And so they were bringing witnesses together. Let's see if we can find at least two people to agree and to condemn Jesus. And the text tells us, many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And this evil plot for evidence, those who are putting him on trial are guilty of it themselves. It tells us in verse 57, and some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, what they are referring to is what takes place in the Gospel of John. Please turn with me to John chapter 2 for a moment. John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus, after he cleanses the temple, drives out the money changers. Jesus tells them by what authority these things are taking place. And he says very clearly what he means. John 2, 19 tells us, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He doesn't say he will destroy it. He makes a general observation. You are making this temple the pinnacle of all, of all be all in the religion of worshiping the Lord, which it was the place on the earth at that time. Jesus said there's coming a day when it will be cast down. The God's people can worship him from any place on earth. And he simply observes, take it down, and I will raise it up. Metaphorically speaking, he's saying, this is where you come to worship, but a, a day is coming where my body's going to be raised. And the people of the Lord can worship wherever. And yet, if you see in our text, in the Gospel of Mark, what does it say? Verse, 50, verse 58. We heard him say, they're twisting his words, I will destroy this temple. Jesus did not say that. He said, destroy this temple. I will destroy this temple. It is made with hands. And in three days, what did Jesus say? I'll raise it up. 
meaning himself. But they said, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Basic premise is there, but they are totally skewing the words of Jesus. But it says in verse 59, yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. A lot of people were speaking up. A lot of people were talking over one or the other, saying similar things, but not getting any of the facts completely right. Even about this, their testimony did not agree. And in all this, what, what's happening? Mark tells us two different times. They or false witness against Jesus. They lied purposefully. Here's the blameless one, the one who no charges can bring against. Blameless for our sin. And they're trying to find anything, a scrap, a breadcrumb of evidence to use against him. And they can find nothing. All the while, why are they going through this what we might call a simple kangaroo court. So they themselves can be blameless in the eyes of the Lord. And Mark is not pulling any punches. He tells us twice, they bore false witness. Exodus 20:16, thou shalt not lie. While seeking to blame him for something, they are breaking the law of the Lord in the presence of the Lord. Now I do want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy 19. Because you need to see and understand just how significant this is. They are seeking some scrap to put him to death. And they are unable to do this. And in their doing so, they are breaking the law themselves. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15 and following. The Lord says, and this is the fascinating part about Deuteronomy, because even if you talk, say about the scribes and Pharisees who keep the law and the prophets and the poetry, the Sadducees, the high priest himself, who only keeps the law of Moses, which includes the book of Deuteronomy, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with the offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses, or if three witnesses, shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness rises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness, and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he has meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Simply put, if you bring a false charge, you are now guilty, and you must be punished the same way. Do you see the high priest upholding that at all in the life of our Savior? No, we do not. Verse 59 of Mark even about this, their testimony did not agree. The hypocrisy is true. The false testimony. We heard him say, no, that's not what he said. They skewed his words. 
because the Jews took any threat against the temple seriously. So what can we do? Well, we heard him say about the temple, I will destroy it. No, that's not what he said. Destroy it and I will raise up the temple. The temple of his body. The one who brought, brings reconciliation from sin. No formal charges could be made, lacking totally in the blamelessness in this trial of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Mankind loves, we might simply say, to watch his own rear end. How can I preserve myself to the best ability, make myself look good in the eyes of others while committing a crime myself? The high priest was not convicted by anything he was doing, nor those following. Their motives were clear, get rid of Jesus. I, re I recently watched a rather lengthy movie took me several days to get through because it was almost four hours. A recent Martin Scorsese movie called Killers of the Flower Moon and the oil fight against the Osage Indians in Oklahoma. And the main character, played by Robert Duvall, was the mastermind behind it all, all the while maintaining his innocence. He went to church, the movie depicts. He pays for the financial loss of those who lose loved ones who are murdered under his watchful eye. When he is finally brought to trial, when people ask him if he's guilty, his response is, I'm as innocent as a newborn baby. That's after about three hours of just evil corruption. And you just feel the heaviness. Brought before the high priest, Jesus is tried falsely and no evidence can stick. They are not blameless in their actions while maintaining the appearance of being blameless. Are we blameless? The answer is no, but Jesus was. And because we are followers of Jesus Christ, we can say, I'm covered in the righteousness of Christ, that I can come and gather with the Lord's people and know that he has paid the price for me. But let us observe in the third place from verses 60 through 62 that Jesus in his meekness is really in control, that although he was abandoned, he endured the shame. Thirdly, that Jesus is our substitute for sin. Jesus was not going to go about this any other way. This was the plan of God before the foundation of the world that he would come, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It tells us in verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst of them. So you can imagine, this is, there's a lot taking place here late at night. Seventy men gathered along with various witnesses, and the Lord Jesus there in their midst. They cannot find any evidence to get to stick to him. So it tells us finally, might say the high priest is very frustrated. He just wants this over with. He stands up in their midst, right in the middle. And he says to Jesus, he asked him point blank, have you no answer to make? What is these men, what these men testify against you? Come on, Jesus, say something. 
what's he trying to do? Well, you might say he's trying to speed this along. But if he can get Jesus to speak, what happens when those who are under investigation speak? They can discredit themselves. Maybe if I can get Jesus to say something. And yet, the text tells us in verse 61, but he remained silent and made no answer. The Son of God doing exactly what he came to do. What does it tell us in Isaiah 53, verse 7? Turn there with me. The prophet Isaiah, probably one of the most famous passages about the Lord Jesus, the coming Messiah. Isaiah 53, verse 7, tells us this. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led, is led to the slaughter, and like the sheep before that shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 700 years before Jesus was even born, the prophet Isaiah through the Lord spoke these words. Isaiah 53 is all about the Messiah and his suffering, how he's beaten and mocked and ridiculed. Verse 7 tells us very explicitly, and even though he went through all this, he opened not his mouth. As we'll see in just a moment, he wasn't silent the whole time. But as all the shame, as all the charges are brought against him, he's not fighting back. He's not resisting. Where someone else might skew our words and take things out of context or slander us or lie against us, what do we do? We pop up and say, no, that's not what I said. That's not what I meant. We seek to defend ourselves. And what does Jesus do? He remains silent. Even so, the high priest and the scribes who were gathered there who knew the book of Isaiah should have known. The high priest says, have you no answer to make? All these things that people are saying to you, all the things that they are skewing, come on, say something. Verse 61, and he remained silent and made no answer. That the lamb is willing to go all the ways to the sacrifice for us. It is as the famous hymn in the line says, in our place condemned he stood. He who did not deserve willingly went all that way stood in our place because Jesus is our substitute as the text goes on verse 61 of, of Mark again the high priest asked him another question he, got nothing, he said nothing so he's frustrated with that and so he asks him again so for the first question very directly is have you nothing to say are you not going to defend yourself come on now alright that didn't work get more explicit here. Are you the Christ? The Son of the Blessed? This passage, this question is dripping with irony. Because the whole Sanhedrin, they, along with the rest of the Jewish nation who did not believe in Jesus, were looking for the Messiah. They wanted their Savior. They wanted the one who would free them from Rome. They didn't believe it was this guy. So to ask the question, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? Is a very direct question. 
But here's also what he does. Are you the son of the blessed? I had to do some study this week and understand what is taking place here. Because when the high priest said son of the blessed, the blessed was the name they gave to the God of heaven. To call him that so that they would not ever be guilty of taking his name in vain. Better not to call him God or Yahweh, call him the blessed, so as we won't profane or slander his name at any point. That was their mindset. Are you the anointed one? Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Even here, the high priest is trying to watch his mouth that he would not slander or take the name of the Lord in vain. And he says, are you the son of the blessed? What has Mark been doing this whole time in our study? Mark chapter 8, verse 29, when Jesus is with his disciples, he asks them the question, who do people say that I am? Oh, some say Elijah, the prophet, Jeremiah, one of the, one of the prophets of old. And then he asks them in verse 29, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. You are the one we have been waiting for. Who do people say that I am? And now here the high priest even asks Jesus directly, are you who you say you are? Are you the anointed, the son of the blessed? Is this true? The leaders are now without excuse in their condemnation of the Lord Jesus because at this the Lord Jesus will speak and answer. Because he says in verse 62, And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And oh boy, does he answer them. Let us not too quickly gloss over the words that Jesus speaks here. Do a little Bible survey with me. Turn with me all the way back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 3. In the book of Exodus, Moses is standing in the presence of the Lord before that burning bush. And he asks, who, who shall I say sent me? Here's the thing that is taking place. These religious leaders... They know the scriptures, even the high priest of the Sadducees. The books of Moses is found in Exodus in this famous passage. Exodus 3.14 tells us, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. It is where we get the name that is right of Yahweh. I am who I am. I am God and there is no other. You know, it's interesting that we can say certain things and ask direct questions. You can say, are you Ben Nagel? And I say, I am. Okay, simply go on with life. But when they ask Jesus, are you? And he says, I am. Not only is he starting with his deity, I am God, but it's affirmed by the other words he says because he not only says, I am, as you say in this question, but he also says, and you will see the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a divine title. If you turn over with me to Daniel chapter 7. 
Daniel chapter 7, which these religious leaders would know is a direct reference to the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, tells us this. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, and one like the Son of Man was coming. They know that's the Messiah. So Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man, the one I'm claiming to be, as the prophets foretold. You will see the Son of Man coming. In the clouds of heaven. Not only that, but you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. What is that? Well, that is Psalm 110, verse 1, where the Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh the Father says to my Lord the Master, sit at my right hand, the place of power, ruling, and authority, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And not only seated at the right hand, but Jesus says here in the text, coming with the clouds of heaven, again a direct reference to Daniel 13, a very explicit reference to the second coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And although I did not plan this, we read from this morning in Revelation chapter 1. I had planned that weeks in advance, and yet here in our text, from Mark chapter 14, we read in Revelation verse one, chapter 1, verse 6 and following, and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Jesus didn't simply say, when you might ask the question, is your name Debbie Nagel? She could say, I am. Are you the anointed one? Are you the son of God, the blessed one? I am. And you will see the son of man coming seated at the right hand of the Father, coming with the clouds of heaven. Basically, Jesus' answer is dripping with Old Testament references. In a very simple answer, Jesus points from Exodus, the Psalms, and Daniel. So much of the Old Testament pieces it together and says, I am that guy. And you will see it happen. The Son of the Blessed. fulfilling exactly what the Old Testament said. So I ask you, Portage Bible Church, this morning, do you believe the words of Jesus? Not only have you repented of sin, but do you believe in who he says he is? Are you simply going through life mournful about your bad choices? Or are you really striving to live for him who has forgiven you all things because he is our perfect substitute for sin, the one who paid it all? Lastly, let us observe from verses 63 through 65 that not only was Jesus meek, not only did he endure, not only is he as our substitute, Jesus was charged with blasphemy while being blasphemed. Jesus was charged with blasphemy, a sin-deserving death while being blasphemed. Verse 63 says, 
And the high priest tore his garment throughout the scriptures when one who is mournful. We see it in the prophets. We see it in, in uh, Ezra very explicitly and many others in the Old Testament. To take your clothes and to rip them was a sign of grief, was a sign of mourning, was a sign of heartache. I hate what I'm hearing. And here the high priest, when Jesus says this, in all the words, I am, and on top of that, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven of all authority. All this Old Testament should have just rushed into the high priest's mind. I'm pretty sure it did. Which is the explanation for his grief, because he doesn't believe it's true. He rends his clothes as a sign of grief and mourning. And the writer, Puritan writer Matthew Henry, observes this, that in the presence of the true high priest, the Lord Jesus, the high priest on that day tore his clothes. And before the Lord himself, tearing apart the high priest position to make way for the true high priest that is in their very presence, whom they do not believe. They are slandering him in his very face, treating him with contempt. And this torn garment is full of irony. But as the high priest is trying to be blameless before the Lord, he's absolutely guilty, holds nobody else to his standards. And the Lord takes away that position and gives it to his son. And then he says in verse 64, You have heard his blasphemy. That's what the high priest says. Claiming to be a man, claiming to be God. Direct reference to Leviticus 24.16. Those who do so should be stoned to death. You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And although the scriptures tell us elsewhere that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were there, they did not agree what was taking place, but generally speaking, all that were there, which included them, the majority gave approval. They all condemned him as deserving death. But now they can't do that. They can't stone him as they would prefer. They have to give him over to the Romans. They have to send him before Pilate. Pilate has to send him before Herod. Let's figure all this thing out. Leading all the way up to his Roman, not Jewish crucifixion, Roman crucifixion. As God has so designed it. They all condemned him, deserving death. They lacked evidence. They could not piece any stories together to make it stick. So let him incriminate himself. Blasphemy. To which he's not guilty of. They are guilty of blasphemy. But in the hardness of their heart, they do not acknowledge it. But then we see here, as Mark ties this up for us, that after they all condemned him to death, the guards who were there, maybe the false witnesses, Mark doesn't point it out, but a lot is taking place in the chaos. Here in the passage is one of those portions that Pastor John Piper would probably refer to and say, when you come to a place like this, linger. Linger. Don't gloss over it. Why is that? Because our Lord came and took our place as our substitute. He was shamed and mistreated. It tells us in verse 65, and some began to spit on him. Began to spit on him. 
For the sake of time, you don't have to turn there, but Isaiah 50, verses 5 and 6. I encourage you to look it up later. Isaiah 50, 5 and 6 tells us this. Lord Yahweh has opened my ears and did not rebel, nor did I turn my back, reference to the Messiah. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not hide my face from dishonor and spitting. You ever been spit at maliciously? It's disgusting. It's shaming. It's degrading. It's horrible. The text tells us they began to spit at him. It wasn't one spit in the face. They began to spit on him. They kept doing it. Not only that, they covered his face and they struck him. That is, literally, they punched him in the face. Several translations says, use their fists. It wasn't a punch in the face. They punched him repeatedly in the face. Not only that, they mocked him. They covered his face and said, prophesy. Who is it that hit you? Tell us. Tell us our names. Tell us what is taking place here. What did Jesus do to his disciples? We went up to Jerusalem. We going to be betrayed. We going to be hit mocked, ridiculed. He did prophesy about it, and they're mocking his prophecy. And not only that, it tells us, and the guards received him with blows, literally slaps in the face. They spit on him repeatedly, they punched him repeatedly, and they slapped him. They kept it up. How do we end a portion of scripture like this? Hopefully we can sing in a few minutes and rejoice in the price that was paid for us. But let us make it personal for a moment that Jesus Christ truly is our substitute for sin, endured the shame. And yet we, like so many, are often so guilty of belittling our sin, of compa- playing the comparison game with one another. Oh, I'm not as bad as that person. I've never done what that person committed. Seeking to look better Sounds like a high priest of the Sadducees. Seeking to keep ourselves blameless so that people won't accuse us. All the while guilty. How do we understand the severity of our sin? Well, next time temptation comes our way, we're saying, Lord, help me. Remember the one who was slapped in the face for you. When temptation comes your way and you seek to justify it, I'm not that bad of a sinner, it's not that big a deal, remember the one who has spit in the face for you repeatedly. When we seek to play the comparison game and seek to justify ourselves, it's not that big a deal. Everybody else is doing it. Everybody else has the same struggles. Remember the one who was punched in the face repeatedly for you. He's the one who came and lived and died, despising the shame, went all the way to the cross so that we can be reconciled from our sin, so that we can be set free from our sin, so that we can be in the presence of the Lord for all eternity. And yet so many times we can sit here and gather, say amen, and yet go home and justify our actions. But if we gather here this day and say, Jesus is Lord, 
are we actually going to live like it? It is as the Puritan John Owen said, the more you live for Christ, the more enemies you shall be sure to have. But the Lamb shall overcome. And yet we come with here, nice word, Pastor, go on with life, hoping to avoid as much grief as we can from loved ones, hoping to avoid the shame and the guilt that a lost world heaps upon us. Will you live for the one who gave all for you? Who said himself in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you? Who here likes to have their words twisted? Nobody. And Jesus says, Blessed are you when they twist your words on account of So, Lord, help us, I pray, this morning. Help us to worship you. We as a people who claim to know your Son, Jesus Christ, the one who endured the shame and went all the way to the cross for us. Lord, forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for our hypocrisy. Forgive us for our self-preservation. Forgive us for always wanting to look right in the eyes of the world just to simply keep the peace. Lord, your word says that if we follow you, we will have enemies. We will be slandered. Our words will be skewed. And we are blessed for it. Lord, help us to remember that blessing. Lord, help us, we pray. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. As the worship team comes forward to close out our time, let us stand together. Let us worship the one who gave all for us so that we can gather here and worship his name together.
As we dismiss this day, remember the one who goes before us, the one who did all for us. Even as the psalm says in Psalm 20, 72, may his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Father, dismiss us now, we pray. We thank you that all we have and all we need is found in knowing you and your son, Jesus Christ. Father God, help us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.